Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Matthew chapter 22 and the seventh verse, Matthew 22, verse 7. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. It's been some time since we considered this parable of the wedding banquet. And surely even before we began this study of every part of this precious parable from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it was surely very familiar to the great many of us. What more sets forth the love and grace of God held forth in the everlasting gospel and this spiritual picture set forth in earthly uh, events in which a king prepares this great wedding feast for his son and bids that those in his kingdom would come to this prepared dinner with all of these delicacies, all of this delicious food prepared for them. He, sending forth one wave of messengers, finds not a receptive hearing, but know that it is rejected. And we considered that. How it was that these servants of the king, they go forth into the kingdom and and many cannot pay it any mind. They're so caught up in their worldly occupations. But even more shockingly, you have some of his servants who are treated with such disrespect that not only are they not heeded, but some of them are even killed. And so we come To the seventh verse in the last sermon in this series, we considered simply the wrath of God, noting that this parable, representing as it does God's dealings with sinners under the new covenant gospel, those who receive the word of this gospel and reject it, hardening their hearts to their own destruction, The unbeliever is under the terrible wrath of God. We considered that terrible subject and you were each warned. Warned to examine your own hearts. Not that you would perish under God's wrath, but that you would receive God's mercy as it is offered here in this great wedding banquet presented for needy sinners, Christ in his sufficiency and his person, work, death, and righteousness. But here we come to the remainder of the verse, and really the whole verse, in its context. And we are brought to a subject which perhaps we do not give sufficient attention to when we study the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. For indeed, 
They do convey spiritual meanings of God's ways of salvation. They do provide searching lessons for us all to look at our hearts and lives by. But they, in their immediate context, were also fearful messages of coming judgment. Judgment. Christ is the greatest of all prophets, as the very word of God enfleshed. Though he was a lamb of God, come not to bring wrath, but a message of mercy. Yet he also warned, warned of a coming judgment upon that nation of the Jews. Yes, that nation set apart and separated unto God's covenant. The physical descendants of Abraham, together with all those who had united themselves in, into the Jewish church across their many generations, throughout all the winding history that we find in the Old Testament, here at this great epoch of redemptive history, the Lord Jesus Christ comes with a terrifying message. And we heard that, did, not, did we not, in the 21st chapter, the immediate context of this parable? Jesus comes as a king riding upon a donkey into his own city, Jerusalem, into his own temple. And what does he find but corruption? turning the house of prayer of his father into a den of thieves. He purges the temple, healing the lame and the blind. The young people singing praises unto him. And there are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes opposing him. And so the great part of chapter 21 is consisting of Messages of this coming judgment clothed in parabolic language, in parables. And we heard those parables, the parables of the two sons. One said, I would indeed serve you, Lord, but then does not. The other, the other son who says, I will not, but then he does. There's this parable also of the great vineyard in which the uh, owner of the vineyard has uh, various uh, servants working for him. And some of these servants take their very possession of the, the vineyard owner as their own. And he sends servant after servant in order to collect the bounty of that vineyard until finally he sends his own son. And that son, in turn, is killed. He turns to the Pharisees. What does this mean? What does this mean? What will happen to that uh, group of people occupying the vineyard? Well, they confess with their own mouth that he will come and he will slay those wicked people. And so Jesus sums it all up in verse 41. They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let 
out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So you see it. The kingdom of God will be taken from the Jews, given to another nation. Indeed, this is the Lord Jesus' way of expressing that radical change under the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace, in which the gospel goes forth unto all nations. And in the place of the Jewish church is the universal or Catholic church of both Jew and Gentile in equality under the headship of Christ Jesus, the mediator. Such is the basic message, and it is indeed one of terrifying judgment unto the nation of the Jews, one that was terrifyingly realized about 30 years after the Lord Jesus' death. I fear that... This subject is seldom taught about, seldom reflected upon, the judgment on the Jews, the judgment on the Jews. But I trust that as we reflect upon this subject, we will not see that the word of God wastes ink on this matter, but no, it has great and practical meaning for us also today, the judgment on the Jews. We'll consider three things in that connection, that this is prophesied, it is warranted, and it is instructed. The judgment on the Jews, prophesied, warranted, and instructed. Well, it is a day that lives in infamy, a day of great tragedy and sorrow, when the Roman soldiers, under the leadership of the uh, great general Titus Zespinus, Zespian, he leads a great military force in order to crush the resistance of the Jewish military force that had been weathering a great siege uh, that had been launched by the Roman forces. You see, in the year 66 of the, uh, of the year of our Lord, there was this war that began, the first Jewish-Roman war, or sometimes called the Jewish Revolt. And if you read the Gospels, like this book of Matthew, you can almost see it on every page. There's this simmering tension between the Roman occupiers, the corrupt Jewish elites that are making this arrangement work for them, and the simmering cauldron of discontent below. Those who are discontent with this arrangement often rebel against it. They often chafe against it, and yet are terrified by their fearsome Roman oppressors. 
That's the context of even the life of Jesus Christ, and it appears in many ways, which I won't explain now. But some 30 years after the Lord's death, this escalates to the point of open conflict, bloodshed, and war. And then four years later, it escalates in the year 70 A.D., with the destruction of that city of Jerusalem, the holy city where the worship of God had been centered, that city of David, that city with so much history throughout the Old Testament era, would now finally and ultimately be crushed under the Roman sword, and you can consult historical sources, some estimates of over a million people perishing, Jewish men, women, and children, great many of them from disease and from, from the famine that resulted from the blockade of food supplies, and many, of course, as well under the Roman sword. Nearly 100,000 led away into slavery, men, women, and children, to perish in Roman Colosseums. Here is something that deserves our attention, a bitter end to a great and glorious history of the whole Old Testament era, a judgment upon the Lord's chosen nation of the Jews. And it is this which... Our Lord Jesus speaks about in verse 7, But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Indeed, the Lord Jesus prophesies of it. It's a prophesied event. The mark of a true prophet is what, children? Is it that they just say many things that will happen, and some of them happen, and others of them don't happen? No. No. How do you know it's a true prophet? They say something is going to happen, and it is so. They have a word from God. Jesus, a true prophet, prophesying the judgment upon the Jewish nation. Not only he, of course, but the prophets of the Old Testament spoke about this. I think particularly of the prophet Daniel. Daniel, you know that name, children. He's the one who was cast into the lion's den. Well, he also prophesied about this, the judgment upon the Jews. Look at Daniel 9, verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So there's the death of Jesus being cut off for the sins of his people, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So it was many centuries before these events unfold, Daniel prophesied it in chapter 9, verse 26. But we ought not to neglect that the Lord Jesus speaks about it so vividly in many places. We saw it alluded to in chapter 21 and now explicitly stated in chapter 22. And how could we forget as well the prophecy of Matthew 24? I want you to turn with me there. 
where the Lord Jesus speaks about this particularly in verse 15 and following. When ye therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let him which, is, which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return to take his clothes. But woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, of course, we're familiar with Matthew 24, particularly as it sets forth the final return of Christ at the end of history. But when you read through it carefully, there are also these allusions to the destruction of Jerusalem, which indeed we can say was a type of the final coming of Christ. And so Jesus very appropriately addresses both events together. Now, if you would compare that with the parallel uh, passage in Luke 21, it comes out even more clearly that there is coming judgment upon the Jews. In Luke 21, verse 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to their mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For thee, there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And then verse 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jesus spoke here of the judgment that would come upon the Jews, and I would have us to remember, remember very clearly that Jesus spoke these words with anguish, with great sorrow. Yes, he, he spoke as a prophet from God with a righteous and a true message about this coming judgment. But we know, do we not, that Jesus, he shed tears for Jerusalem, for sorrow did, did he have to communicate these things concerning his countrymen according to the flesh. Luke 19 and verse 41. And when he was come near, that is near the city of Jerusalem, he beheld the city and wept over it. The Son of God weeping over the city chosen of old. Verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall 
and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. A terrible tragedy, brothers and sisters, we observe here. Jesus spoke, even in these days of his earthly ministry, that the city would be barricaded, the city would be blocked off, that Roman soldiers would come and they would tear down all these structures, they would slaughter and they would kill, and all because they had not known the time of their visitation, the visitation of the very Lord of hosts himself, come in their flesh as one of the seed of Abraham, coming so close with a word of clarity, a word of truth, a word of mercy. And yet they harden their hearts unto their destruction. We see this and we compare it with our text for it says in verse 20, uh, in verse 7 of chapter 20, 22, And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. It's difficult to explain, isn't it? You have these Roman soldiers who are pagans, who are not fearers of God, and yet Jesus refers to them as his armies, in context, God's armies. God uses even this wicked nation as the rod of his judgment in order to destroy the covenant people of the Jews. We look at this and we see this is something of the greatest importance, prophesied, true, fulfilled, one that we must take heed to. But let us look at this from another angle. I wish to speak to you now and say that this was a very warranted, a very warranted and just judgment. And for that, I would, I would put to you what we read of about God's dealings with his people, his covenant people of old, even from the book of Deuteronomy. God had laid out in great detail, you can read all about him, that these are the obligations, these are the expectations, these are the requirements for my people. If you obey and, and hold fast unto my word, you shall live. If you disobey, you shall die. God had always specified this, had he not, that he, as the king of Israel, would not tolerate sin. Had he not shown it and displayed it in the judgments of the northern kingdom into uh, captivity into Assyria, of the southern kingdom into the land of Babylon, and then bring them gradually back under Ezra and under Zerubbabel, and preserving them throughout all of the, the difficulties of the days of the Maccabees. And, and finally, even now here in the days of Christ, he sends his only son, and still they will not hear. And where Jesus would speak, of this as the messenger of the Lord, speaking this word of final judgment upon the Jewish nation at the end of the Old Testament era. 
He weaves it all together and says, this is all one story. This is all one prosecution of a broken covenant with the Most High God. Listen to how he speaks in Matthew 23, verse 29, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye, sorry, ye Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye kill and crucify, and some of them ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Bacharias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. So why is Jesus saying that in particular? Why Abel? Why Zacharias? Well, you need to understand, these represent the first and last martyrs of the Old Testament Bible. The Bible, you see, arranged beginning at the book of Genesis. And, and you know the story of Abel, don't you children? Killed by his brother Cain for his faith and obedience to the Lord. What you might not know is that Zacharias, a man by that name, was the last one to be martyred or killed for the Lord. And as you read about that in the book of 2 Chronicles, which in the Jewish reckoning was to be numbered last in the Old Testament canon. And so Jesus, as it were, in the days of his earthly ministry, binds up all the whole Old Testament and says that here is a great mountain of blood guilt, of moral culpability, and it's all going to come crashing down on this generation in this great judgment, which is fulfilled in 70 AD. And part of us wants to reject that and pull back from it and say, surely it's not right. It's not right that there be this dealing of God with a nation, that they would have upon them some guilt from their fathers. And yet what's, what's abundantly clear is that Jesus says here that, that you would have partaken of the very crimes of your fathers in killing the prophets, the same Hardness, the same wickedness, the same unbelief, the same rejection of me. I see it in you, what I saw in your father, says the Son of God. Is it not the case that we read in the Ten Commandments themselves that our jealous God, he visits the iniquity upon the children unto the third and unto the third generation of those who hate him? Indeed. Where children would embrace the sins of their fathers, imitate the sins of their fathers, approve of the sins of their fathers, there is culpability and guilt in the sight of God. 
And so there's a special way in which this is a warranted judgment. It represents all the sins of the Old Testament, but also we understand, do we not, that this was also perpetuated against the Son of God himself, against Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Who among us can read that account in Matthew 27 and not weep Not weep at the terrible hardness of heart exemplified as Pilate stands before the people in verse 24 when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us. And on our children. Terrible. Taking this malediction upon themselves as those who would even crucify the Son of God Himself, approving of it, endorsing it, urging that it happen. And did not Peter himself have to convict the Jewish people of their sin on the day of Pentecost, saying that they with wicked hands had killed the very prince of life. So it was. It was especially for this, especially for this, the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that the wrath of God was visited upon the Jewish people. Indeed, in our parable, You see how they treated the servants of the king spitefully and even slew them. Indeed, you see how the majority of the apostles, all but one, were martyred, were killed for their faith. Many uh, with Jewish uh, unbelievers participating in or encouraging them. We see it in the very martyr Stephen, who as he is being stoned to death, he sees Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of the Father, as it were, uh, enraged and standing to vindicate and defend his precious servant. Indeed, we can't discount that it's the servants of Christ himself who are spoken of here, especially in the days of the apostles. But also it's the crucifixion of the Son of God as the ultimate servant of his Father who was ultimately treated in this way, murdered. And the Apostle Paul, he weaves all this together in a very succinct passage, one of the surely most um, sobering passages on this topic in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Hear what the Apostle says. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when we received the word of God, which we heard, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have been of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and and they please not God and are contrary to all men, 
forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Listen to what John Calvin says about that passage. As sorrowful as it is, he says, it is asked why he says that Christ and the prophets were killed by the same persons. You understand the question. He's asking, why is it that uh, the apostle says that these same people, the Jews, they killed both the prophets and Christ. Those were events separate over many generations. And this is what Calvin says. I answer that this refers to the entire body, the entire nation. For Paul means that this is nothing new or unusual in their resisting God, but that on the contrary, they are in this manner filling up the measure of their fathers as Christ speaks. Listen to Dr. John Gill speaks about this passage as well. For though Pilate condemned him to death and the Roman soldiers executed the sentence, yet it was through the malice and envy of the Jews that he was delivered to him, who brought charges against him and insisted upon the crucifixion of him, and who are therefore said to have taken him with wicked hands and crucified and slain him, and to have killed the prince of life and to have been the betrayers and murderers of him. And therefore it is no wonder that such persons should persecute the followers of Christ, whether in Judea or elsewhere. So we see here that it was not for any crime or sin that this judgment befell the Jews, but it was because they killed and murdered the very Son of God. So having demonstrated that there is this prophesied judgment, and we've seen that it was indeed warranted and and most just, I wish to draw by way of application a number of applications. We will see this is a most instructive judgment for us. We ought not just to say, well, yes, there's just so much information here, but let's try to get get down to what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, I think that in the first place, this ought to inform how we assess the religion of Judaism today. It ought to inform how we assess the religion of Judaism today. Now, it was a disheartening thing I observed this past month because a number of prominent people in the Christian community, including one who is a prominent uh, Reformed individual in public life, actually celebrated and promoted the Jewish religion upon the holiday of Yom Kippur, meaning the Day of Atonement. And of course, that, together with all of the Old Testament feast days, is celebrated in particular by those who hold to a form of Judaism which rejects Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which indeed, in the Babylonian Talmud and in other of their religious documents says that Jesus Christ died not as an innocent man, not indeed as the Messiah, but as a blasphemer. Indeed, the religion of modern Judaism is founded upon the principle that Jesus Christ was not the true Messiah, that he indeed is not to be worshipped and adored as the one mediator between God and man. 
And where we would rightly assess these things, we ought to say with the Apostle Paul that those who so practice and believe such things please not God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the only faith which pleases God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so however politically incorrect it may be to say, however unfashionable we ought to say that the religion of modern Judaism, as it is so called and known, is under the curse of God. It is a filthy idolatry. It is a blasphemy against the Son of God. Approving and uniting with the sins of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation who murdered the Lord Jesus Christ and who murdered his servants, who received a just judgment from God in the destruction of the Jewish city of Jerusalem. And it ought never to be approved by any Christian. The second place we would say not only does this influence our assessment of Judaism, but also our assessment of deficient theologies, deficient theologies. And I speak especially of those theologies which in some way try to soften the reality of what happened in 70 A.D., so, for example, you have forms of dispensational theology, as it is often called, and they would try to draw this bifurcation or division in God's redemptive plan. They would say, well, the church or the Christians, they are the heavenly people. They are destined for a heavenly inheritance. And there you have the Jews, the modern Jewish nation and people. They are the earthly people. They have an earthly inheritance in the land of Canaan. And so what you wind up having is there are whole sections of the Bible, surely the Old Testament, but also portions of the New, which have no practical reference unto the Christian church. They have reference only to a physical nation. And what are we to uh, say about this? How are we to assess it? Well, we have to assess it in the light of the scriptures, surely. What are we to make of uh, theology, which, for example, would celebrate and justify the modern nation state of Israel on theological grounds, saying that the Jewish nation and people have a right to that land, have a right even to ethnically cleanse that land. They have a right indeed to ensure that only their progeny and descendants would make up the majority of that land, that they may practice their anti-Christian religion. Well, how is it weird to assess that deficient mode of theology? Well, according to the word of God, where in the covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy, we read in chapter 28, verse 63, and it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and ye shall be plucked from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even to the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. We read on, and it is equally severe in its statement that it is for 
those who would break covenant with God, the Jewish nation, in rejecting the Lord of their salvation, they would not have a right to the land. They would not have a right unto the blessings of the covenant, which are indeed to be received only by faith in the mediator and true repentance unto righteousness, neither of which are possible where one rejects the gospel. So we ought to say very clearly that any Christian theology which would provide a religious sanction for a Zionism which is Christless and indeed opposed to Christ ought to be completely rejected by Christians. Finally, I would leave us with this application. We may be instructed by the judgment upon the Jews also by examining our own hearts. Examining our own hearts. Listen to what Dr. Gill writes about this parable. A worse punishment than this, even the vengeance of eternal fire, may all the neglectors of the gospel and persecutors of the ministers of it expect from him, whose vengeance is and who will repay it. For if judgment began at the house of God, the people of the Jews who were so called, what will be the end of them that obey not the gospel of Christ? How sore a punishment shall they be thought worthy of who trample underfoot the Son of God, count his blood a common thing, and do despite to the spirit of grace? If the law, when transgressed, demanded a just recompense of reward or inflicted deserved punishment, how shall the neglectors of such great salvation revealed in the gospel escape? Or you can think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. Oh, where the kingdom of God was removed from them and given unto a nation that bears forth repentance. We ought not take that an occasion to be proud, to be elevated in ourselves. No, but to fear, to tremble at the word of God. If you, my friend, are rejecting and despising the gospel of Jesus Christ, how much more terrible will be your judgment? Not one temporal and in the destruction of a city or in the slaughter of an army, but in your, the loss of your eternal soul. Oh, well, here is the parable of the wedding banquet. Here is the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, mercy and life and forgiveness for those who receive it, but terrible judgment upon those who reject May it be that all of us, all of us would not harden our hearts to such destruction, but that we would hear, while it is yet the day of grace, this word of life.